I'll never forget the time I went to Earl Hargrove, then president of Lincoln Christian College, for advice. I'd been out of college a year or so and was serving as youth minister in Springfield, but felt it was time for me to seek out a preaching ministry. The big question was where? I decided to ask President Hargrove if he knew of any churches that were looking for a preacher. He mentioned a church that I already knew was looking, and I told him I had heard that that church really had problems. I'll never forget his response. He looked at me very sternly and said, Son, if churches didn't have problems, they wouldn't need preachers. Now, I'm sure there are some who would change that a bit. <laughs> They'd be more likely to say if churches have problems, it's the preacher's fault. And there are times when the preacher is the problem or is at least more a part of the problem than the solution. But that was not the case in Ephesus. They needed a preacher. And I can almost hear Paul telling Timothy the same thing President Hargrove told me when he asked him to stay in Ephesus and try to straighten up the mess that was there. I can even hear him calling him son. At the beginning of his letter to Timothy, Paul referred to him as his true child in the faith. And he had complete confidence in Timothy, not only because of the relationship he had with him, but because of the way he had been raised. In his second letter to Timothy, he said he was mindful of the sincere faith within him, which first dwelt in his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And there you have it, a nod to mothers. On Mother's Day, Timothy was a man of faith, at least in part because of the faith of his grandmother and his mother, as am I. And because of his faith and his heritage and history of faithfulness, Paul was confident Timothy could do what needed to be done in Ephesus. And there were a lot of problems in the church at Ephesus. As we've already seen, the most pressing problem Timothy would need to address was a group of teachers who had gotten sidetracked, who were always talking about myths and genealogies and the law. They had lost focus of the gospel and were destroying people's faith with their speculations and their legalism. Timothy's first job was to get these teachers back on the right track. Then he was to give attention to the church as a whole. Because there was a lot of conflict and confusion in the church coming not only from the poor teaching they received, but also from a lack of organization and misplaced priorities. So once Paul had instructed Timothy how to deal with the teachers and had encouraged him to fight the good fight, he moved to a discussion of priorities in the church. 
And then he shared some practical advice on how a congregation should be organized and how to deal with specific administrative problems that can arise in a local church. It's a very practical letter that Paul wrote to Timothy and one that I think we can gain a lot from as we study it together. And we pick up our study today where Paul is, in effect, sharing with Timothy the first concerns of the church. And he begins by urging that prayers be offered on behalf of those outside the church, recognizing a need for the church to be concerned about its setting in society. We're ready to begin the second chapter. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that the first thing Paul urged upon the church was prayer. Through Christ, we have access to the throne of God, and we must surely take advantage of that position. When we gather as a church, prayer should be a primary part of our activities. Specifically, Paul says we should be making entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. The distinctions between those four types of prayer are subtle, but I think yet valuable to note. Entreaties or supplications have reference to specific needs that arise and need special attention. So we should not hesitate to be specific when praying for needs. Prayer is the general word for prayer and includes all aspects of it. So it's also appropriate to include requests for God to meet general needs, such as continued wisdom and guidance. Petitions and intercessions primarily refer to the practice of carrying someone else's prayers before the throne of God, and this we do when we ask for prayer requests. And thanksgivings, of course, refer to expressions of gratitude that are offered to God in the form of prayers. Paul says the church should be involved in all these aspects of prayer, and this we should expect, and this we do as a church. But then he had something to say about the focus of our prayers that some might not expect. Instead of saying that the church should be offering up such prayers on her own behalf, he says the church should be doing so on behalf of all men, especially for kings and all who are in authority. That means that contrary to common practice, the church is not to be an island to itself, or not to be isolated from the world, concerned only about our members and our programs. The church is to be the light, the salt, and the leavening in society, and therefore must be concerned about the society in which it finds itself. We're not to be of the world, but we are in the world, and we are to minister to the world. 
That means our prayers have to go beyond our personal and congregational concerns. We need to be making entreaties and prayers on behalf of all men. We need to care about those outside our walls and pray for them and for their needs. Now, when Paul says all men, he's not suggesting we must pray for every person in the world. Obviously, we could never do that unless we did so in a a general, all-inclusive sort of way. He's saying we are to pray for men without distinction. We are to pray for the rich and the poor, the black and the white, the successful and the failures. No one is to be excluded from the concern of the church. And then he says, specifically, we're to pray for kings and for all who are in authority. We are to pray for our governmental leaders, all of them. In our society, that means the president, all the way down to local officials. We are to make entreaties and prayers on their behalf. We are to pray for the struggles they face and the personal needs they have. We are to even carry their unspoken petitions before the throne of God, putting into prayer the frustrations and doubts they've spoken or tweeted. We are to pray that they'll be receptive to God's leading. And we are to thank God for them and what they're accomplishing, whether it fits into our political agenda or not. It might help us to remember that Nero was on the throne when Paul wrote this. So we're to pray for the authorities even if they're doing horrible things or of of the wrong party. All civil authorities are to be included in the church's prayers. Why? In order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So Paul said. Now on the surface, that might seem to be a bit selfish. It might sound like we are to pray for our leaders so we can have a good life. But more is at stake here. As we read on, it becomes clear that Paul desires a tranquil and quiet life so the church can reach out effectively and minister in the world, not so the authorities will leave us alone and let us do our own thing. Paul is urging us to pray that conditions in society might be such that the church can concentrate on reaching out, not just on survival. Now, it is true that sometimes the church really grows and prospers under persecution. We've seen that happen many times throughout history. But as a rule, it can be more effective. The church can be more effective if free to interact openly in society. And Paul wants peaceful conditions to prevail so Christians can openly live lives of godliness and dignity. So we can be seen in society as good, law-abiding people who bring glory to God. Obviously, it would be hard for the world to respect us if Christianity or the teachings of Christianity were illegal 
and Christians were viewed as criminals. And I'm sure you're aware that there are moves being taken now to make that the case in some things we believe. So we should pray for unhindered opportunities to live out our faith in full view of all men. After all, sharing our faith with all men is the mission of the church. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's vital that the church pray for all men and witness openly to all men because it's God's desire that all men be saved. The church is not a closed corporation for the chosen few. It's a broadcasting station charged with the responsibility of getting the word out that God loves every man, woman, and child and would like to see all come back into fellowship with him. That is the mission of the church. It's not just to hold services and hold on until Jesus comes back. It's to get as many as possible ready for that event. Paul reminds us of a great truth here when he tells us that God desires all men to be saved. God hasn't shut out anyone. His offer of salvation is open to all, and he desires that all respond to that invitation. Now, it's true that not all will. God has given us the freedom to choose, and he won't violate our freedom. This is one case where our will overrides the will of God. He won't force anyone to accept his offer of salvation, but he wants it known that everyone is welcome to it. He shuts no one out, and neither should we. Now, sadly, it's easy for a church to develop a personality that limits its outreach. Unconsciously or sometimes consciously, we look for what we consider to be our type of people, and other types aren't made to feel like they fit in. If they are too rich or too poor, too educated or uneducated, or whatever else is different from the majority, we simply assume they won't fit in. So we don't go out of our way to invite them or make them feel welcome. We've got to be careful about that. And one way to avoid doing so is to consciously pray for all kinds of people and all kinds of needs. I mentioned before, I I frequent Walmart. Not only do I like a good deal, I like the opportunity to see all kinds of people. It makes me aware that we have a mission field that's much broader than people who are just like us. We've got to be careful about that. God wants all kinds of people in his church, and it's his will that they all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And we have the truth 
that everyone needs. Truth about God. Truth about man. Truth about life. Truth about death. And we have the ultimate truth in the person of Christ. And that truth must get out to all men. That's our mission and that's our message. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. We can't isolate ourselves from the world and then comfort ourselves with the thought that what we have is our way to God and everyone else has their way to God. That we have our truth and they have their truth. We can't hide behind the, the popular notion that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That's just not true, even if my grandma did say it. There is, in fact, only one God, and there is only one way to God. If we've gained knowledge of the truth through God's revelation of himself, we have a responsibility to get the truth out. We've got to tell the world that there is but one God, and that there is but one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator is someone who stands in the middle and brings two parties together. And there's only one person qualified to bring man and God together. It's the man Christ Jesus. It's God himself in the flesh. We cannot let anyone assume that he has found another way to God through morality or good works or a Hindu temple in Chatham. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. We've got to declare that boldly in the world. We've got to let it be known that Jesus is the only way to God because he is the one who gave himself a ransom for sin. He is the one who paid the price for sin, and he is the only one who can offer salvation from the consequences of sin. We've got to bear testimony to this through our lives, and through our words. And now is the proper time to do so. Christ has ascended. He has commissioned his church, and he is coming back, perhaps real soon. So we better do what he sent us in the world to do. We, like the Apostle Paul, have to recognize that we have been appointed preachers, that every one of us has a message to declare.
And we have all been appointed apostles. We've all been set apart as representatives of Jesus Christ. Getting his message out and representing him in the world are the first concerns of the church. It's our job to become what Christ wants us to be so we can effectively reach out and tell all men that they too can become what God wants them to be. We do that by first praying for those around us and praying for a receptive society in which to minister. Then we take advantage of that receptivity to live lives that bring glory to God and gain the respect of our fellow men so we will be able to effectively share with them the good news. The good news that God loves them, that Jesus has paid the penalty for their sins, and that they are welcome to come back into fellowship with their creator. They are welcome to come home. There's no better time to come home than on Mother's Day. That's true for you as well. If you've never responded to the invitation of God, God loves you and desires for you to be saved. Saved from the eternal consequences of your sin and saved to a life of ministry and service. The door is open and Jesus is calling.